Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Vladimir Putin received a red carpet welcome when he joined the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation, which took place in Beijing in October. He strode into the Great Hall of the People, shoulder to shoulder with Xi Jinping, referring to him as a dear friend, while pledging support for China's plan to connect the world through major infrastructure projects. State media in China suggested that hundreds of countries took part in the forum. But in fact, the event was snubbed by the governments of many nations. Among the notable absentees were America, nearly all the EU countries, Japan, South Korea and the United Kingdom. So is the BRI really entering another golden decade, as Xi Jinping said in a speech, or is it becoming an obsolete concept? I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast a respected independent analyst on China, Fraser Howie. Fraser, thanks very much indeed for joining us again. Thank you, Duncan. Pleased to be back. Now, let's start by looking at the China-Russia relationship. Mr. Putin said in Beijing that the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, has achieved great success and its achievements have been recognised by the world. He couldn't have been more positive about it, in fact. And in return, I think he received tacit support from Xi Jinping over the invasion of Ukraine. Now, that wasn't stated directly, but Mr. Xi said that China supports the Russian people in pursuing the path of national rejuvenation and safeguarding national sovereignty. Am I right in thinking that there's been something of a quid pro quo arrangement? Well, I don't know if it's a quid pro quo arrangement, but there's certainly a mutual admiration society. And that talk of sovereignty, of national rejuvenation, of course, these are phrases that Xi Jinping has used to describe China under his rule. So they are very close friends. They've talked about an un, a no limits partnership. Vladimir Putin has very few friends in the world apart from Xi Jinping. So it's not surprising he's going to talk up Xi and the BRI while he's in Xi's house. My interpretation, Fraser, is that China has been saying to Russia, if you support our big global project, we won't slam you for attacking Ukraine. Well, I think that's right. I think that perhaps is a better way to put it, because they see themselves together, maybe not necessarily as fully equal partners, Russia being a somewhat more junior partner by virtue of size and its pariah status. They certainly see themselves as forming a new polar axis to sort of counter the West or counter America as they see it. Somewhat sadly, though, they're defining themselves by being not America. What they actually stand for, what even the BRI stands for, isn't so clear. Now, I have noticed that China and Russia have been using similar rhetoric of late when it comes to the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Now, that's a complex situation, and I'm not a great expert on the Middle East, but it would seem to me as though both Russia and China are reluctant to condemn the Hamas violence too strongly. And they're definitely not saying to the Israelis, we want you to win, which is what the British Prime Minister said in Israel last week. 
Yes, well, I think they appreciate that the it is such a complex situation. They're not being drawn in the same way that poor Rishi has, who I have to say, I don't think he's a particularly deep thinker on many of these issues. Without question, it was a terrible atrocity, a terrorist atrocity perpetrated by Hamas. Israel does have the right of self-defense. But then as events develop, you see the humanitarian situation playing out in Gaza. You see how the rest of the Arab world is responding, how the Arab streets responding. Areas where Russia has long had influence and an area where China has growing influence with Saudi, with Iran and other countries. So I think both of those powers find the Middle East a very insoluble problem. Not that the West has any great solutions, but I think they do want to be very cautious there because they don't want to alienate many of their partners, and in China's case, those who are providing a large amount of their oil. Well, those are good points, Fraser. And we'll have a look at China's response to the situation in the Middle East on next week's podcast, uh, when we'll be joined by the uh, former BBC China editor, Howard Zhang. But let's go back to the Belt and Road issue. Um, and let's look at some of the other people who did join that big BRI event in uh, in Beijing. I could only see one European leader in attendance, Viktor Orban of Hungary. What was he doing there? Uh, well, of course, he's a big fan of Putin. He sees Putin and Russia as one of his of his, his role models. Hungary has is sort of signed up to the BRI. They like the China model. Um, but the bottom line is, for many European leaders, they don't want to share a forum. And in fact, there were European representatives, other representatives there, but they don't want to share a forum with Vladimir Putin. They don't want to be standing shoulder by shoulder in Beijing on the red carpet uh, while the war in Ukraine is going on. So it's a very complicated uh, problem for them. But in Orban's case, of course, he likes thumbing his nose at Brussels. And what better way to do that than to stand with China and with Russia? Well, I think you make an interesting point about the, the guest list, Fraser, because there were a lot of countries represented, but they weren't represented by their current governments or national leaders necessarily. I mean, there might have been think tanks or particular organisations within European or African or, or even North American countries that are known for their uh, friendly relationship to the Chinese Communist Party, and they turned up. But that's quite a different thing to seeing uh, national leaders and foreign secretaries turning up. It's interesting, if you look at the number of leaders, how it's fallen off over the three iterations of this. And I think it's partly because when the Belt and Road started or when this branding process started, a lot of people could sign up and agree on the benefits of greater infrastructure, certainly in the developing world or the global south. Um, and now, though, many of the problems with the BRI and also how the BRI is changing, many countries are getting, if not necessarily cold feet, they're certainly getting a bit lukewarm. I want to say something about Italy. Italy actually signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative a few years ago. But the current Italian defence minister, Guido Crosetto, has concluded that was an atrocious decision. Could you say something more about how the BRI is perceived in Italy and indeed in the EU? Well, of course, the EU has slowly come around to understanding that there are a lot of strings attached with China, that nothing was simply economics or nothing was simple, that China was not becoming more like us. They were not moving towards political reform or democracy. Um, and so there has been a realization, scales falling off the ice when it comes to the, sort of the China strategic view from Europe and certainly from Western Europe. Um, and I think that Italy is realizing as well that you sign up for the Belt and Road, they're experiencing a problem that many countries have seen, 
which is that their trade deficit has ballooned with China, that it seems to have been a great big win for China and not much of a win for Italy. And there are many countries in Western Europe um, who are very cautious about, in a broad sense, what they call debt traps, although that's probably too harsh a term, but the feeling that the BRI is, you know, is costing the, the recipient countries far more than they're gaining. Now, I've read a number of articles which insist that China's Belt and Road Initiative remains a popular concept in the global south. Now, when you and I had a pint the other day, we both said that we felt that the term global south is a bit misleading. But, you know, for the sake of our discussion at the moment, let's just agree that that term covers a lot of countries in the southern hemisphere. Are they still expecting win-win collaboration with China, even though several of these major BRI projects have run into trouble? Not as, as optimistically or easily as they thought they did when they signed up, I feel. Many of these agreements, MOUs, were initially secretive. They were not public and they have now come to light. There was a feeling that many of the, the, the less developed countries were basically very much in the minor role and going to just have to go along with what China wanted. They were getting infrastructure projects, yes, but did you really need a six-lane highway from the Colombo airport to the outskirts of the city? Again, who was going to pay for that? Was there going to be enough revenue? And of course, we've seen in China a vast overcapacity of infrastructure, and that has been partly reflected in the BRI projects in the Global South. I, there's certainly a willingness and a welcome for further Chinese money, but I think people are growing more cautious of it as they understand some of the, the strings attached or some of the unforeseen consequences of these uh, developments. Well, it strikes me that from the Chinese perspective, the biggest problem with BRI is debt. China is now owed an awful lot of money by developing countries, which frankly are going to struggle to repay it. How are the Chinese responding? Two responses to that. One is that the amount of funding has just actually fallen in the past few years. It isn't as gung-ho as it used to be. The recipient countries are perhaps more cautious, and certainly the Chinese are also much more cautious about how, the, how much they're lending out. But also what's happened is, 10 years ago, the BRI was very much, or the One Belt, One Road, as it was called 10 years ago, was seen as very much an economic infrastructure type of thing. Now, uh, and the past summit really shows this, I think, very clearly, China is now trying to position the BRI as part of this multipolar world and be almost political in nature. That it is no longer simply about economics and infrastructure, that this is now an ideological type of process as well to counter what it sees as malign US and Western influence. Well, I'd like to go back to that phrase you just mentioned there, multipolar world. I'm doing some, some teaching of politics at the moment, and this is one of the first things that we talk about on, on, on the course. Could you explain what you think this phrase multipolar world means in terms of China? This phrase, the multipolar world that China often talks about, they will all, they talk about that no single country should be the hegemon, that there should not be a unipolar world. And they sometimes or they sometimes don't mention the US here. And when they talk about a multipolar world, they're seeing this, that there are different parts of the world, different countries, different sovereign states run the world different or have different way, views of how things should be run, how countries should engage with one another. Um, and they love to promote this idea of multipolar world. Of course, in the Chinese case, what they're particularly saying is they're saying, leave us alone. We want to run our country how we like it. 
And so therefore, they do not see that things like universal human rights apply to Chinese citizens. That's just not how the Communist Party works. They say we have thousands of years of history. And so what works in America or works in Europe doesn't work in China, therefore leave us alone. So often this multipolar world when can often be dressed up as a, as a language of inclusion, actually is one of exclusion because they're saying, you know, we should be allowed to like treat our citizens any way we like because we're running the country, that there are no universal rules. And in the same way, we, there should not be any sanctions or any economic pressure against countries like Iran or China or North Korea or Myanmar for egregious human rights records or, you know, as in case of Myanmar, ongoing war with the, the opposition forces. So it's multipolar, I think we all recognize as different races and cultures and things that make the world such a diverse place. But in the Chinese case, I would say it takes on a somewhat more sinister or less welcoming uh, framing. And lastly, I think it's worth saying that China's ability to project itself internationally has been somewhat undermined by turmoil within the foreign ministry. So earlier on this year, we were told that Qing Gang was going to be the new foreign minister. Then he was uh, sacked. And in fact, uh, he's no longer a state councillor. He's uh, He's been purged. And we also saw a few weeks ago, Li Shangfu, the defence minister, being removed uh, from the Chinese cabinet. What's going on? That's a very good question. And I think very few China watchers have a good idea. Both of those people who have been purged, Qing Gang and Li Shangfu, were prodigies um, and came up very quickly under the wing of Xi Jinping. And so they were very much his people. Um, and so we talk about his one party or his one you know, one man rule and how he surrounds himself by loyal followers. Well, two of them have just fallen away very, very quickly. So in many ways, it does seem in a Chinese sense or a recent Chinese sense, this looks pretty chaotic. Um, you know, I think we just need to look at the UK politics to see what a chaotic change of leadership can look like. So again, we've seen that in other countries as well. But China's often tried to present a very sort of stable uh, form of government saying, look, look how stable we are. This is much better than the chaos of democracy in the West. And yet clearly things are playing out very badly for Xi. Very interesting. Thanks very much indeed, Fraser. That was the author and analyst Fraser Howey. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute in London. And you can find out more about our courses and research on our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.